Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right. We are talking about every day. Every day. <sighs> it's fine. It's perfectly <laughs> fine. It's actually, it has kind of a, a couple of nightmarish elements, but for the most part, it was all right, but forgettable. Yeah. And I'm a little bit worried because this is like the one week that I was like, I was on it. Because listeners who are not keeping up with the minutia of my life might not know that I'm in the process of buying a house in a different city. And if you're not up to date on this, like, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> Seriously, people. And so I knew like yesterday we had to drive to the other town, which is three hours away, like Ooh. sign all the paperwork with the lawyer, do all kinds of adult things like make a will and like order Ooh. carpeting, which I think of as sort of equal levels of adulthood. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh, yeah, set up like our power of attorney, like all this adult stuff, and then drive back. So I was like, okay, I can't do what I usually do, which is sort of finish the book and watch the movie really close to when we do the podcast, because yes. I'm going to run out of time. And it's true, we got stuck in this horrible traffic jam on the way back yesterday, and we didn't get home until very late. So it's good that I was responsible. Adulting. But normally... The texts we read are really memorable. Right. The week that I decide to get everything done, the weekend before, like, I was finished it, like, I was, like, done everything by Friday. Uh, and okay. I chose to do that in the week when the text is the most forgettable. Yeah. It's like you've got A syndrome. <laughs> do. Just I like a do. mind blank. Oh, maybe you were taken over by A over the course of the weekend. <laughs> And it's made worse. I'm just like gearing up listeners for how bad this episode's going to be for me. Because it's made worse by the fact that I tried to read the sequel and didn't finish it. But also I think it might have just made me confused. Because now I've read, I've now read it from two different perspectives. Yeah. Much of the events of the text from two different perspectives. So. And then the film kind of <sighs> also confuses that to a certain extent. Yes. And I think in a lot of ways, we're going to talk about this, but I think the film does some things really right. And that's why I wanted to read the sequel. So for listeners, we're talking about Every Day by David Levithan. <laughs> Two minutes in. <laughs> we did say it off the top. We just didn't actually say, you know, anything else. <laughs> it's a book that takes place from one person's perspective. And I was worried that it was going to be a lot of voiceover narration. Right. And as Joe and I have talked about, like voiceover narration can be really effective. It can also be extremely grating. Yeah. They chose to completely change the focalization in a way that I think was really useful. You but, betcha. And that's why I read the book, because the book is written from that other character's perspective. So the sequel, sorry. So I was like, well, I'll read the sequel and then I'll kind of know if they cribbed from the sequel to make mm -hmm. the film. But all I've done is muddied everything up in my head. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So what you're saying is this is going to be the amnesia episode of the podcast. <laughs> Joe, I'm just stuck in someone else's body, man. Just stuck in someone else's body. Oh, man. But the potential, the yeah. idea of being able to jump into somebody else's body, so attractive. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily that the person themselves has to be attractive. Although if we're going by the movie, then they're all incredibly attractive well and it's important because if there's one thing the book teaches us it's that if you're not physically attractive to someone you're profoundly unlovable okay okay <laughs> well we've both fired some shots so before we get into it any further Brenna, do you have homework that no. you would like to share no i don't and here's why i have a justification <laughs> 
Stop using adulting as your excuse. Okay, number one, did you hear all the adult things I did this week? But also, I got myself into trouble because I spent most of the week reading the last sequel to The Giver, Sun, right. which is the one that I hadn't read yet. So listeners, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, yeah. go back and listen to Brenna talk about The Giver and the three sequels for about 10 to 15 minutes. <laughs> And then I realized sometime around Friday that I can't talk about that because I've already we talked just talk about, about it. it. Yeah. And then I was like, well, that's fine. I'll read another day. So I'll have read the sequel. So I'll have that to talk about. And then it got to a point where it was basically unreadable to me. So I have not done any homework. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that you tried, but your dog ate the homework. <laughs> I'm watching Fuller House on Netflix. No, I will not. No, <laughs> I will not allow that as homework. In fact, you know what? Just go to your corner. <laughs> I don't want to hear anything more from you for a couple of minutes. <laughs> oh, oh no, I did think of something. Okay. I actually watched another episode of Gossip Girl while I was packing. I think oh. I might finish the series. I think okay. I might. We have gotten feedback from people who were incredulous that yeah. you had not watched Gossip Girl. Yeah, I know. Listeners, we're still recording very far in advance, so it's not <laughs> as though Brenna is coming back to this months later. She's technically still only a couple weeks out from it, but yes. <laughs> Everyone was very adamant that you, of all people, should be watching Gossip Girl because you, of all people, are the target demographic. <laughs> and I take our fans very seriously. And I will say it's really good background noise for packing. Mm-hmm. And I still don't know if my emergent class warrior is going to be able to handle finishing it, but I'm going to keep it going. And the other thing is that if somebody can tell me where I can get the OC on streaming... I will watch The O.C. because that's the other piece of feedback we got that week was that how yes. is it possible Brenna hasn't watched The O.C.? Thank you. I get it. But it's not <laughs> on streaming in Canada. So unless you can let me know where, and I don't own a DVD player, so please, three people message me to tell me to buy the DVDs. Right. That's insane. So <laughs> not bad, right? Because as we're discovering, sometimes it's very difficult to find quality content on these streamers because they just come and go. They like come physical and go. media is really all that lasts, but at the same time, it's also not the day and age where you're just gonna go out and buy a DVD player anymore. No. And this is a real problem because I just noticed as I was, you know, Netflix lets you download things. So I was downloading things for mm -hmm. my toddler to watch while we spent 90 minutes in a lawyer's office yesterday. And two of his favorite shows have the thing on it now that says, will be removed from Netflix in August. And I'm like, but right. who's going to parent my child Yeah. if you take this away from me? So you're going to have yeah. to find a new substitute for Blue's Clues or whatever, <laughs> Thomas the Tank. I don't know. Are these things, are these actual properties? Those are they actual like properties. They salad. They are not his favorite properties, but they are actual properties. We're a true in the Rainbow Kingdom household. Actually, that's not true. We are a Thomas the Tank Engine household. We just don't watch the show because it makes me nuts. Which is not Fair a enough. Mm -hmm. okay. All right. What was your homework now that we've, we've caught everyone up with my life? Right. Okay. <laughs> Follow Brenna on Twitter for more scintillating updates about Wills. <laughs> All right. I am catching up. So there was a time, I mean, at this point, I have no idea when it will have occurred to listeners, so I'm just going to cut all this out. <laughs> Leave that laugh. Go on. <laughs> so I saw a tweet from a publisher, a Canadian publisher, who was, you know, doing a promoted sponsored tweet about a book that I assume had just come out. And it was about queer witches. So I was like, a Canadian book about queer witches. Why were we not informed? Actually, you know what? I don't even know if it's Canadian. It was queer <laughs> witches. 
But your comment was more or less exactly what I responded to with their tweet. I was like, hi, we run this young adult podcast and we are very much into queer witches. And why have you not sent me a reader of this? So they sent me a reader. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. So I've begun reading it. It's called The Lost Coast by Amy Rose Capetta. They were meant to send you a copy as well. I don't know if it ever got to you, Brenna. (laughs) Why is my apartment like a black hole for mail from publishers for this show? It's very odd. We can only hope that in your new place it'll be better. I hope so. So I'm just going to read you the jacket blurb. Danny didn't know what she was looking for when she and her mother spread out a map of the United States and Danny put her finger down on Tempest, California. So clarification. Not <laughs> I'm amazing at this. This is our best episode yet. Yes, we are consummate professionals. I would like everybody to rate and review us on iTunes based on this episode. <laughs> but please give us a pity five-star rating. Yeah. What she finds are the Greys, a group of friends who throw around terms like queer and witch like they're ordinary and everyday, though they feel like an earthquake to Danny. But Danny didn't just find the Greys. They cast a spell that called her halfway across the country because she has something they need. She can bring back Imogen, the most powerful of the Greys, missing since the summer night she wandered into the woods alone. But before she can find Imogen, Danny finds a dead boy with a redwood branch through his heart. Something is wrong amid the trees and fog of the Lost Coast, and whatever it is, it can kill. Um, that sounds great. Yeah. So it's not the easiest of books to get into right off the bat because Amy Rose Capetta, she's laying not just groundwork, but she's also not interested in spoon feeding her audience. Mm. So one of the things that I both appreciated and was also mildly frustrated with was you just land in this world. So it opens up with Danny and this boy, Sebastian, and they're climbing a tree in the middle of this redwood forest in California. And you get the impression that Danny is mildly uncomfortable. She doesn't quite fit in her skin. She doesn't quite know who she is. Sebastian is making overtures towards her like he wants to kiss her because they've been at a party. There might have been some drinking. There might have been some smoking. And Danny's not sure about it because she tends to kiss girls. So right off the bat, we get this queer perspective, but she herself doesn't identify as such. Like she she doesn't have the language to talk about it. Oh. And then when they come down, she runs into the Greys, which are these four girls, various different body sizes, different types of personalities, and they each self-identify as witches. And a couple chapters later, they talk about their pronouns, they talk about their witch powers, they talk about their sexual orientation, their lifestyle. So there's actually an entire section where they just talk about like how they prefer to be addressed or what they are which is kind of super fascinating like it's the kind of thing that you just don't see in a YA text well I mean I feel like we're increasingly seeing it now but in Mm -hmm. the past we never would have yeah so that was super refreshing the narrative itself takes a little bit of time to get going but there's a lot of potential the way that the witchy powers work, the kind of system that they're operating within, like they still go to a regular high school and they're the weirdos, but the kids also kind of leave them alone because there's an almost implicit acknowledgement that the woods have a power. Mm. 
And then every couple of chapters, you get a standalone piece from the perspective of birds who are attached to the greys or the trees that are attached to the greys. And there's always something sort of nefarious, like this idea that there's an evil power emerging. So I'm only about 80, 90 pages in. So things are really kind of just starting to come to grips. It actually took me a while to figure out that Danny was even a girl because I hadn't read the opening flap. So I just said, oh, Danny, that's obviously a boy. And I thought, oh, here's the queer element. It's Danny and this boy are going to make out in the forest. So that's the kind of thing where you have to pay attention. You have to piece things together. But it's highly readable. Mm -hmm. It's enjoyable. And I'm loving the fact that it's so queer and inclusive. And yeah, it's just really refreshing. So I feel like I'm two for two now between this and Hot Dog Girl last week nice yeah sounds good and also i mean we've been talking a lot about how big a problem it is when ya techs don't trust their audience or don't give their audience sort of credit for being able to follow a narrative or allow for complexity and so i'm always excited to hear techs doing just that i hope it is coming to my house (laughs) how long ago did you get it uh a little while ago it's not coming to my house is it? probably not then Maybe I'll reach back out. I'll see if I can get them to help you. Yeah, so that is The Lost Coast by Amy Rose Capetta. Great. All right. Okay. Every Day by Mm -hmm. David Levithan, not David Leviathan. We're going to say his name right upwards of some times today. Yes. So Every Day is, yes, it's a young adult novel. It's also a little bit of a, I don't know, fantasy, supernaturally. There's something going on that's For more sure. than, it's not realist way. Let's put no, it that way. No, but it's also not the book's focal interest at all. Yeah, and it's interesting because I was thinking about how annoyed we both were when Adam Silvera had this kind of element in his mm. book but didn't explain it. And yet here, I wasn't looking for an explanation. But I think I might have been less invested in what was happening. Interesting. I was going to counter that. I think part of this is that the premise exists solely so that you can get on board. But at the end of the day, it's really just a launching pad. Any kind of investigation as to the nature of A and how it all happened, like there's a subplot in this book, but it just gets completely abandoned. Like it's not pursued at all. And in the film, it doesn't even exist. Are you saying that you are not going to be purchasing the prequel? Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, so we we had this discussion offline before this started recording, and mm-hmm. I've got to say I'm so over this idea that YA authors strike gold with a great premise and arguable success. Like, people seem to like these books, but then, you know, we have Isaac Marion with Warm Bodies. We've got Cassandra Clare with The Mortal Instruments. Like, you don't then have to run your idea into the ground with as many sequels and prequels and side adjacent texts as you can think of. These are talented, these are mostly talented people. David Levithan is definitely a talented people. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I would argue so is Isaac Marion. And Mm -hmm. the less said about Cassandra Clare, the better. But (laughs) I don't believe for a moment that they don't have other ideas and other characters that they could be exploring. And every time I see, which is hilarious because you've just talked about The Giver and all of its sequels last week. And I was like... (laughs) They're not all the story of no, Jonah No, it's not just a retelling Gabe. again and again. No, it's yeah. not. And I mean, that's both a strength and a frustration with the Giver series because I think a lot of people pick up the sequels wanting like a concrete answer and you don't yeah. get that until much further on in the series. But 
Okay, I Sorry, guess we should I cut say- you off. You didn't even like get into what this book is about before I was like, I've got a bone to pick. Well, I will say that Every Day was the sort of first of these books. It came out in 2012. And then in addition, there is a prequel novella called Six Earlier Days that came out the same year, kind of on the back of the massive success of Every Day. There's a companion novel, which is the one that I tried to read, not a sequel, companion novel called Another Day, which is the same book told from the perspective of the female protagonist. Which just feels like a Twilight kind of shtick thing. It was extremely I know that Stephanie Myers did that with her characters. Yeah. I'm not on board with that no. at all. And then there is also a sequel called Someday. And then there is also... A sequel no, short no, story no. that got released with the international edition of Someday called Day 3196. No. <laughs> no, just don't. Just don't. Okay, what so, is every day and only every day about? Okay, every day is the story of A, although we don't learn A's name until oh God, nearly midway through the book. But every day is the story of A. And A is like a disembodied Entity? spirit, ghost, baby person Soul. thing that yeah. ages but doesn't have a corporeal form of its own. Yes. And what happens to A is that every day A wakes up in someone else's body. Someone else the same age as they would be if they were a person who aged. So at the time of the story, A is 16 and waking up in 16-year-old bodies. Mm-hmm. And they're all within the same geographical location. Yes, the spirit cannot travel more than it seems like about a three-hour car ride, the distance of a three-hour car ride, right? I think that's the furthest, or maybe four. Yeah, and these are all sort of arbitrary things that don't get explained, and you're not really meant to care. Yeah, they don't even come up into the narrative until you need a reason. So like, A can't get on an airplane, and we find out that A can't get on an airplane because it will take them further away from the community where they have been living sort of yes it's really hard to talk about okay it really is do you want to use it or do you want to use they yeah it's a good question a does not specify a specifies being genderless and the only reason i keep going back to it is because i don't really think of a as a person that's the part that makes me struggle so okay. i'm happy to let's go use it way. then okay yeah so when the story opens a wakes up in the body of justin and justin is like a cool kind of dick he's super cool he's super cool he doesn't care about stuff because caring about stuff isn't cool and -hmm. he has a girlfriend named rhiannon and a can sense that justin is not a very good boyfriend to rhiannon and normally a has a whole bunch of rules for itself about making sure that a doesn't doesn't like screw up the real person's life yeah Yeah. so like a in justin's body isn't gonna isn't supposed to like come home and be like, I hate you, mom and dad, and pack up all stuff and start like running, right? Because the real person is coming back the next day. A only ever gets one day. Yeah. But A feels this intense connection to Rhiannon. And instead of doing what it's supposed to do, which is just sort of caretake the body for a day, A decides to kind of give in to these feelings that it has for Rhiannon and constructs this sort of one perfect day where they leave school and they go to the beach and they have this absolutely perfect day together. Super romantic, very connected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then A goes to sleep and at midnight wakes up in a different body, as is A's custom. Mm -hmm. But 
A can't, can't stop, stop thinking, thinking about, about Rhiannon. Because <laughs> if not, it wouldn't be YA and there wouldn't be a book. <laughs> it keeps constructing reasons for whatever body it's living in to go and find Rhiannon. And there's some interesting stuff going on with gender because A feels very post-gender. Like yes. A doesn't understand why it is that Rhiannon can feel attracted to Justin but not attracted to the young woman whose body A is living in the next day. And that's a huge through line in the text is whether or not what Rhiannon has is a sexual orientation and an experience of desire or like a lot of hangups. And that seems to be kind of like a conversation that continues throughout the text in some really problematic ways that we will get to. Yeah. It's always interesting. Like I appreciated the efforts that Levithan is making to address those kinds of things. And Mm -hmm. particularly the fact that every day when A wakes up in these different bodies... We're always privy to what the experience is like. And for the most part, A is actually very open-minded. You know, like a body is a body and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, like it's not just post-gender, it's kind of post-everything. Like A is almost enlightened in that way, Mm -hmm. except for when it isn't. Yes, and one of the things we'll talk about today is that the climax of the novel, the emotional climax of the novel, happens around a pretty incredibly fat-phobic scene Not just in the way Levithan depicts the body, the fat body in which A finds itself, but A's reactions to being in that fat body. And then I think for me, the kicker is it is after A has been inside the fat body that Rhiannon decides she can't possibly love A in all of A's incarnations. And I think that was a really gross thing for Levithan to do. It's hugely problematic. Yeah. So as Brenna and I were chatting throughout the week, I've read this before, but had mostly forgotten it. So I remembered the experience of reading it. Perhaps I myself was possessed at the time. (laughs) But I remember finding the book okay. And then when I was reading it, I was actually enjoying the early parts where A was walking us through what the experience is like of Mm -hmm. inhabiting these new bodies. Then I got your text that was like, what is this fat phobic, like, beep, beep. (laughs) (laughs) And I had no idea what you were talking about. And then when I got to it, because I was obviously breeding behind you because you were so ambitious and you got through this so early, (laughs) I was kind of aghast. It honestly felt like a different writer. Maybe David Levithan was possessed for the day because (laughs) it seemed so out of character for A and for the text. And for Rhiannon. Like, Rhiannon has a hard time with the different bodies that A embodies, but has this sense of, like, wanting to try over and over again. She's like, I feel weird about you being in a woman's body when I don't consider myself anything other than heterosexual, but I want to try to be with you and spend time with you. I'm still going to, like let you touch my hand. I'm still going to sit close to you. But when it's the fat body, it's just, Levithan makes that the bridge too far for Rhiannon. That's the deal breaker for Rhiannon. Like, oh my God, you could wake up and be fat. And that's the thing I can't cope with. Like I can cope with you being like a suicidal teenage girl. And I can cope with you being incredibly impoverished. I can cope Mm -hmm. with you being, there's just like every single life experience that the narrative keeps showing us. All people are willing to overcome it. And yet there's so much similarity between us. We are a united community of man. It is so humane the way we all experience the world. And then it's like, oh, but not if you're fat. Yeah. And I was just like, what? Yeah. I beeped myself. 
And it's very odd, too, because there is a climactic kind of cathartic moment earlier in the text where A ends up accidentally, question mark, breaking up Justin and Rihanna because, of course, this whole time she's also still protesting that she can't be with A because she's still dating Justin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she still has feelings for him. Mm-hmm. Even though he's literally the worst. He's the worst, yeah. But kudos to Justice for making him bearable in the film anyway but there's a moment where a is more or less discovered talking to rhiannon and everyone assumes that it's because rhiannon is cheating on justin Mm -hmm. with this person and it should be at that moment in the text where she says you know what i can't do this anymore you know i've become this harpy at school i'm being ostracized like i've got to deal with my own stuff but instead they overcome that mm-hmm. and then it becomes the fat phobic stuff that becomes the deal breaker and it just doesn't work well it doesn't make any sense with the character either character and no. either like the growth that either character has been through the shame that a feels in that body after talking to us so much about its profound capacity for empathy i just it was so strange and at first i thought levithan was trying to make a point like about societal fat phobia yeah But the fact that the relationship hinges on, not that it hinges on the fact that Rihanna needs to be physically attracted to the person she's with. Though she kind of does. She does, but that's not the deal breaker, right? Like the deal breaker is particularly her disgust around fatness. And what makes the text itself fat phobic as opposed to a critique of fat phobia is that A is kind of like, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, wait, what? That's the part where he, it just gives up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Was that ever... Yeah. It's, it's jarring. Yeah. It's uncomfortable. It's jarring. And it, it's interesting because the first thing I did, because I was like, I'm not the only person seeing this, right? So I did right. a quick everyday fat phobia search. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not the only person. <laughs> this yeah. is everywhere in the Twitter sphere, in the blogosphere. Yeah. And it's one of those things, too, where this text is too recent to be yeah. this misguided on yeah. this particular point. Especially when you take it into consideration, or rather in context with the rest of this book. Like, Mm -hmm. it feels out of place. Like, it feels wrong. Yes. But we've made our point. And we've not summarized the plot at all. Well, and here's the thing. (laughs) I was going to point out, if it seems like, you know, oh, we've gotten off on a tangent here about this one particular issue, it's because the book is literally just a trying to find a way back to Rihanna and throughout all these different bodies every day all day yeah. i guess there's basically three bodies that matter like other yeah. than rhiannon and he doesn't he does end up embodying rhiannon for one day which was a, also a scene that i found relatively uncomfortable it fine it is but. but i kind of think it's the most interesting part of both the book and the film i agree with you actually it's one of the few places where i liked the film's handling better or like the book's handling better than the film for the most part i like the film better than the book here but um hmm. so there's rhiannon Obviously. And there's Justin, who's the first body he embodies that allows him to have this experience. Then there's Nathan Daldry. So immediately after he embodies Justin, the next body he wakes up in is Nathan. So Nathan's is the first body that he basically makes act completely out of character in order to get near Rhiannon. And in this case, Nathan's a nerdy homebody and he makes Nathan lie to, sorry, makes Nathan lie to his parents to go to a house party and A doesn't want to leave the body in time. So there's this rule in the universe that A has to get back to the person's home before midnight. That's when A will change bodies. Yeah, it gets booted out. 
it's a really painful experience for A to do that while awake. If it happens while A is asleep, it doesn't feel anything. But if it happens while awake, it's like basically like being ripped out of a body and it's painful. So that's the first thing. Although why A can feel pain is anyway, it's fine. Yeah. Um, and then, go with it, go with it. But the other thing is that obviously when A leaves the body, the person is just left somewhere, right? And so in this case, Nathan gets left on the side of the road in his car where he's stopped by state troopers and it becomes this whole thing because Nathan doesn't remember ever going to a party or lying to his parents. And so people think he's drunk or stoned, but he comes back completely sober. And so Nathan becomes convinced that he has been possessed by the devil. Right. And he also has very religious parents. Yes. And that's, and he himself is religious too, I think. And that's the subplot that Joe's talking about that gets completely dropped. And to me, that was the really interesting part. Like I liked reading about how, I liked the idea that there was finally some conflict. Like there was some okay, yeah, sort of notion that A was going to get quote unquote caught out. And what does that look like for A? Right. But instead, you just have a very confused Nathan exchanging emails with A because A has his own A has its own separate email account separate from the bodies that it right. inhabits. And Nathan gets involved with this guy named Father Poole, who claims to be a priest, who claims to want to help Nathan, but really he is actually a spirit like A, A. who yeah. has successfully taken over a body full time. Yeah. The true demonic possession. There were like two novels happening. There was like the sort of possession novel, and then there was like this love story novel. And they weirdly intersected in places, but the film very wisely left the entire possession conversation out because yeah. it never gets dealt with in any way that is satisfying. No. And maybe that's what the sequel someday has, but you know what? I will never know. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, the book becomes so repetitive because oh, yes. it's like... I'm in a body, I'm looking for Rhiannon. I'm in a body, I'm looking for Rhiannon. And it began to wear away at what's interesting about the individual lives that A is inhabiting because so often the life itself that A is inhabiting gets completely, that's the word I'm looking for, subordinated. Yeah, to this quest for Rhiannon. And I was just like so profoundly over the quest for Rhiannon. Yeah, I got so bored. It's like... I would wake up in this body because it's A as first person narrator. I wake up in this person's body. What is this person doing? Oh, they've got a test. Oh, they've got field hockey practice. Oh, they've got a big date. Oh, they're going to a pride parade. Like all these interesting things. Like Mm -hmm. all of these individual people with their individual lives. And it comes to a certain point in the novel where because the YA romance is the driving influencer these people's lives just cease to matter and a just goes oh well you're not going to make that test today because i gotta (laughs) drive two hours to go see rhiannon at a coffee shop and you're like but rhiannon's not that interesting (laughs) she's really not i get it it's young adult romance so it feels like it's the be all end all of the world and again maybe this is because we're adults and we're reading it and it's Mm. like "Eh, okay sure i am an adult i have a will now (laughs) <laughs> hey you're also the, the person who married her high school sweetheart <laughs> it's true now we both have wills yay <laughs> life <laughs> but yeah yeah this was giving me ptsd flashbacks to everything everything well it's funny that you but say also that. before i fall because you know how i always complain about the mediocre white boy heroes of a lot of the straight female-centered Yes, uh, we, we, found the we found the equivalency. 
<laughs> the we gender found equivalency. Our, our mediocre white girl. Hi, Rhiannon. Welcome to the stable of white mediocrity. I mean, she's she's fine. Fine. She's yeah. lovely. It's just there's never an indication of why this girl is no. so special. And no. you know, I think of the glimpse of the two girls that are secretly dating but pretending to be best friends that are just so in love with each other and how A just hijacks that to make his own narrative like oh I'm wishing that this was Rhiannon because this is how they feel about each other and I was like I want to read their book I I don't want to read your story anymore A I'm sorry (laughs) and I was like that particular scene especially because A keeps saying like well look at all the ways these two people love each other in spite of everything and why can't Rhiannon feel that way for me and I want to be like because you're literally a different person every day. Yeah. Like, it's not actually the same thing. And no. it's interesting because, I mean, the book in some ways brings up this question about, like, are you allowed to prioritize physical desire on some level? Like, yeah. A seems constantly like, well, why isn't she into Asian girls? Yeah. Like, <laughs> a just outright rejects, like, why can't you see past this flesh sack that I'm wearing for the day? <laughs> and I think that's a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. I liked the ideas that this book brings Mm -hmm. up around different bodies and different experiences and whether or not love means being able to look beyond things like physical appearances. Like, Mm -hmm. that is fascinating. That Mm -hmm. is really rich, interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. That gets abandoned in favor of I gotta drive two hours to see (laughs) Yeah, and I think part of the problem to me is just if you're going to have this subplot with Nathan, with this other character who has figured out a way, it just seemed too obvious to not end up exploring that to some degree. And saying A is going to be the one to try to make the sacrifice and do it with the icky connotations that you're now suddenly taking over this person's life Mm -hmm. so that you can get that thing that you want. And that's where Mm -hmm. I thought the book was heading Mm -hmm. and it was going to have to investigate those murky moral qualms. Mm -hmm. And instead, it's just, I'm going to find you some other really great boyfriend. Peace out. Don't worry, I spent a day in him. He's fine. Yeah, I woke (laughs) up and he had a lot of post-it notes. He seems like he's perfect for you. (laughs) It's a weird book. So there's one scene where the body that A wakes up in is a suicidal teenage girl. Yes. And this is another moment where the book begins to do something really interesting and then shies away from it, which is that Rhiannon tells A, you have to help this girl. Yeah, like you can't just passively ride this out and let this girl kill herself in six days. And A's like, well, I don't meddle in people's lives. And meanwhile, we're all like, you, you, yeah, what? like you... mouths open, jaw on the floor, <laughs> like, what? You're just gonna let this girl commit suicide when you have the capacity to do something? <laughs> and like, you absolutely do meddle in people's lives. Like, people don't get to take their finals because you got drive Rhiannon, but this lady can just kill herself, and you're fine with it. Like, yeah. it was weird. And so Rhiannon steps in, and she's like, no, you have to do something. Yeah, and so, thank goodness. A makes the body have a conversation with the body's father. And I loved that. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, maybe this is A is turning over a new leaf and A's new thing is going to be spending one day in each person's body, making yeah, like that making person's it life better, better. Making the world a better place as opposed to just coasting through life. Yeah, no, just the one time. <laughs> one time. Yeah. Like I really learned something valuable. Oh, wait, I'm also going to do everything the same and revert back just like all of the people that I inhabit. 
like I thought for sure that that was where the book was going like it was going to be like okay this is how you resolve the fact like A is pretty adamant that it can't live in a single host because that would be destroying that host's life so this is a way to have a life that is meaningful while still playing by the bizarre rules you were born into no that would have been interesting but it just gets abandoned like so many things because we have to wrap up the love story and Rhiannon has to get a boyfriend out of this, even if it's not the person she's been falling for for the whole book. Like, the primacy of the heterosexual romance in this ostensibly queer-friendly text I found really odd. Yeah. Okay, so I'm so happy that you brought that up because part of what I feel like we've been collectively struggling with throughout this episode, we both accidentally said he yeah. a couple of times. Uh-huh. And I don't think that's by accident because... No, I don't either. I know we said we're going to say A is it or they. A is a he, isn't it? That's part of the problem with the way... It's something in the way that Levithan is writing this. A is coded male. Male. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's just because we're introduced to this character, entity, spirit, soul, whatever you want to call it in the body of a male character but the attraction to Rhiannon you know there's a kind of throwaway line where A says I thought that I was in love with someone once and it turns out that it was a boy mm-hmm. but again there's no development yeah we never there. hear that story so no. it literally I think is two or three lines like mm-hmm. I thought it was love but it turns out it's not love because it doesn't feel the same way I feel with you oh my gosh I'm so in love with you yep but it's a weird It's it's hard to shake that off. I think it has a lot to do with the way the love story is set up from the first. And so you also get things like A is not supposed to be a heterosexual boy, except reads entirely as a heterosexual boy. Like, for example, A is a 16-year-old entity, and the only time A has any sort of sexual impulses, reflections, is when A is trying not to look at Rhiannon's body when it is in Rhiannon's body. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, you never hear anything. It's not like, I don't know, it's weird. Like, you're a 16-year-old embodying all these naked bodies yeah. <laughs> over and over again. You and should that... be constantly looking, touching, feeling, exploring. Wouldn't that be part of it? Instead of this weird, like, only when it's Rhiannon thing that, again, just reinforces this idea of, yeah. of this heterosexuality at the center. Mm-hmm. Age 16. That's yeah. such a specific time period. Yeah. I'm sorry. At age 16, yep. there'd be plenty of touching and yeah. looking and feeling yep. of these different types of bodies. Except, oh, wait, I'm only attracted to this girl. Yeah. 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 And I think that might be why the sanctimoniousness of A being like, I don't understand why you're still not hot for me when I'm, <laughs> when I'm this woman you've met for the first time. Why don't you love me the same way you loved your boyfriend of several months, right? Like, it's weird. It's almost like the book can't commit to, no. it can't commit. Yeah, I think it can't commit. And also, it's almost an unwinnable exercise. This, to me, is a like the whole enterprise is a book built around a really fascinating premise and then the whole book is about trying to write yourself out of the predicament (laughs) of it okay how would I talk about this okay what do I do here and obviously the love story is a familiar almost easy way to navigate that like it's a good linchpin to wrap your frame around but then 
the problem is that the text then overlooks all these really interesting other ideas because it's like, well, I can't shoehorn that in and I can't have this perspective go too far. You can see the seams Mm-hmm. And I think those are more interesting than the actual final product. I agree completely. This feels like it has a bad editorial hand all over it somewhere. Like that all of the interesting content has been subsumed for the love story just seems like such an odd choice. Yeah. Which is why your comparison to Silvera is actually quite apt, right? It's this idea like, did no one talk to you about how making this a love story is actually the least interesting way to take it? Yeah, and I think this is, it's interesting because this is not a realist YA, and yet it's, neither is Adam Silvera, and yet both of them are falling into that realist YA trap of teen girls aren't going to buy this unless there's a romance at the center of it. And Number one, I don't think that's true. I just don't think we have the data to support those kinds of assumptions. Gosh, I'd hope not. It feels based on assumption, right? Yeah, it does. And especially when it ends up creating a much a much less effective book. And it's so weird to me because this is a guy staunchly mid-career novel for Levithan. It's got uh, like okay. a ton of books behind him. It does make sense because his writing itself is good. Mm-hmm. So this is, I think, a confident writer. But yeah, mm-hmm. it almost feels like I've been kicking around this premise for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm now at a stage in my career where I can try to deliver on it. But oops, I never quite cracked it. He apparently started drafting it when he was on a book tour with John Green for Will Grayson, right. Will Grayson. Yes. Which is 2010. Hmm. Okay. So not that long in development then. No, not really, which surprised me too because I thought the same thing. I thought that this is like <laughs> like one of those passion projects that yeah. just can't let go of even though maybe it's not <laughs> Maybe it needed to working. be let go of. Yeah, I don't know. I like David Levithan in lots of other contexts, although I will say my favorite David Levithan books are his co-writes. Like, right. I think he's really good at co-writing, much like Becky Albertalli, although I like her solo stuff too. So, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I don't know. I don't know either. And maybe this is a good point for us to now bring in the film and talk mm. about the attempts, I think, at reconciling some of the challenges. Yeah, I think, and in many ways, I think it does a really good job. So yeah, let's definitely talk about it. Okay. I am someone who wakes up in a different body every day. Always someone my age. Never too far from the last, never the same person twice. And I have absolutely no control over any of it. The day that Amy shadowed you at school, I was Amy. And the day that you went to the beach with Justin, I was Justin. It's not possible. It is. Hey, it's me. Every day of your life, you've just woken up and... Just tried to live that day for that person. That sounds really lonely. It isn't, because I know what makes each person different and what makes everyone the same. Why are you doing this? Day we met, I felt something I've never felt before. I don't want to let that go. I am so proud of you. Oh, thank you. I'm in love with someone who wakes up in a different body every day. Always the same age, never the same person twice. You're such a bright, beautiful, kind, funny person. Michael, we are gonna miss our flight. My family's supposed to fly to Honolulu today. If I go tomorrow, I wake up as a kid who's not flying back here. Oh my God, this kid does not exercise. 
All right. So the film comes out six years after the book in 2018, and it is adapted by screenwriter Jesse Andrews, and it's directed by Michael Suxy. I looked up to see if he had done anything else that's notable, and interestingly enough, he has done an adaptation of a Nicholas Sparks novel called The Vow, mm, Channing Tatum. Okay. And most intriguingly, Grey Gardens, the HBO oh. adaptation, which was very, very well received. So it's an odd career path. This is not the kind of film I would have expected from someone like this. I will say that the screenwriter, Jesse Andrews, is someone who I think we'll be seeing again probably later this season because he wrote Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Yes, okay. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I was intrigued by that because he's the author and the screenwriter of that property. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. he himself is actually a YA novelist, not just a screenwriter. Yeah. Well, not to say anyone is just a screenwriter. No, but he has both in his background, which I think is interesting. And I think this screenplay is a very good realization of the best parts of the novel. I think it's savvy. It's very savvy. Knows how to deliver on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm just so poorly said by me okay (laughs) this is a tough one because obviously it has a huge cast but no one is really notable except Mm -hmm. for the couple of people who show up more than once so anchoring the film is an australian actress named Anne gary rice and the most fascinating thing about this film is that they focus primarily on her. So instead of have it be A's experience, that is the focal point of the narrative and follow A as it jumps from body to body. We instead have Rhiannon as our protagonist and the film is funneled through her perspective as she encounters all of these different people. So that's the, I think the most significant difference. And I think to be honest, this is the most significant change we have seen in any of the book to film adaptations we've covered. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you agree or disagree with that. No, I agree. Actually, I do. It's a really smart decision because I think it would have been unsustainable and honestly would have included so much freaking voiceover narration. If we had a followed A, it would have been intolerable. (laughs) You know what else, else would have happened had that been the case? If we had known A primarily through voiceover, that would have gendered A even more strongly. Right? Because we would only know A in either a male or female voice. I mean, with some exceptions, right? And so I think, especially I think they would have probably just chosen a male voice. And I think that that would have been to the detriment. Plus, God, who needs that much voiceover? Right. If you're not John Cusack and it's not high fidelity, you're doing too much voiceover, stop it. It's Brenna's rule. (laughs) Or you just go with a metallic, like, computer voice. Oh, no. Can you imagine just like an AI robot voice? (laughs) I am a. (laughs) Okay. So we have Justin is played by Justice Smith, who we've actually already covered on the podcast. He was radio in the adaptation of Fault in Our Stars. Mm -hmm. No, not Fault in Our Stars. Paper Mm -hmm. Towns. Paper Towns. There we go. (laughs) Which is funny because I feel like I carried over my enjoyment of him in that role to this film because even though Justin is a really bad guy, I quite liked Justice Smith in this film. Mm -hmm. And then other notables, 
this may mean nothing to you, but one of the people that A inhabits is Jacob Batalon, and that is Peter Parker's best friend from the new Spider-Man films. And there's a fun connection because apparently Anne Gary Rice is also in those films. She plays oh. Betsy. I didn't I recognize her, so I don't know how big or small her part is, but... It's a fun little connection. Rannon's family is played by Maria Bello. So she, her mom and her dad, Nick, who's played by Michael Cram, they both get beefed up roles because their relationship is on the rocks, but it's also meant to kind of symbolically mirror the possibilities of love and romance. And then she also has, I'm not sure if you can clarify this for me is jolene the girl that she gets rides with is that her sister or just her friend it's her sister in the film yes yeah yes as far as we know she doesn't have a sister in the book does she i don't think so okay so all of these characters get either introduced or beefed up roles to help flesh rhiannon out because really what you discover in hindsight is that we don't know rhiannon very much at all in the book Because it's only whatever A can decipher about her life. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is one of the problems with what makes Renan so interesting. (laughs) We don't know. Only A seems to know for sure. (laughs) So true. So you mentioned that you preferred the movie more than the book. Do you want to elaborate on that? I do. But first I want to tell you that Karina Evans, who plays Hannah, do you know who Karina Evans is? If you say Degrassi, I'm going to get annoyed. Okay, it's not Degrassi, (laughs) but it is six degrees from Degrassi. Karina Evans directed Drake's music videos for God's Plan, Nice for What, and In My Feelings. Okay. Those were all hot 100 hit singles. And she's like a woman in a music video directing biz. That's like not a thing. Interesting. I'm just saying. No, I mean, that's... I don't know what she's doing in this movie because she's going to be off making music videos for Drake. So I don't know why you'd be in this movie. Maybe directing Drake music videos doesn't pay as well as having a minor role in a <laughs> Canadian YA adaptation. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So why did I like the film better? Okay. So I actually think that as much as I don't think Rhiannon is particularly interesting in terms of like, why is she so com- why is he so compelled to be in love with her? Yeah. I think that Rhiannon being a whole human being is a more interesting protagonist. So the fact that we can actually like know her whole life, the film does a good job. And this is, I'm just kind of getting into this with the sequel or the companion book or whatever that I'm going to abandon as soon as we're done recording this episode. But it's a ringing endorsement. Rhiannon's got a difficult home life. So her mom has some mental health issues in the book. In the film, they make that her dad, but we have this great, rich backstory for Rhiannon because of the way the film is structured so we know that she has this sort of ongoing struggle with her parents right which okay I think that's important because then it makes it in the book you're like why is she with Justin why why is she so desperate to try to make this relationship that sucks work and why does she feel any loyalty to him when he obviously feels none to her right and you get a sense of why with the context of her family yeah. in the film. Yes. So I think Rhiannon is richer, more nuanced, more complex. And I still don't understand why A breaks every rule that it has ever set out for itself to live, with, to be with Rhiannon. Like, I don't think she's that compelling, but no. much more compelling than having the alternative, right? And the only way I could envision the alternative is a voiceover making like sidelong jokes alongside somebody live trying to live their life. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
because we're focalizing through Rhiannon, and it gives them more freedom to actually develop A across the different people whose bodies it inhabits in just yeah. a way that is a lot more compelling and a lot less static. Yeah, because I think one of the things that we both identified as being not the most problematic, but something that neither one of us really ended up caring for is just the repetitiveness of the book, right? So repetitive. Despite the fact that A is living in all these different people's bodies and it should be a different experience all the time, it just winds up being like, it's a new day, new body, gotta go find Rhiannon. Whereas in this film, the timeline feels quite a bit more condensed. So it sort of feels like it's all happening within the space of a week, a couple of weeks. The film also cuts out a lot of the... Filler? <laughs> yeah. The fatphobic scene gets completely elided because, first of all... Well, I think they realized that yeah. was not going to fly. No, and they deal with it in two ways. One is that uh, Jacob Batalon is, like, incredibly handsome, right? And he's, he's a fat so dude. Charismatic. He's incredibly handsome, and he's charismatic, and yeah. he's engaging, right? So that's not the body that A wakes up in, in the book, right? So first of all... Well, that body is in there, though, in the book, because that body says, oh, can we go outside? There's too many people listening. And she says, no, I'm not oh, going yeah. outside with a large man like you. No, that bo- they do. But in the book, oh, this is the other place I was going with this, is that in the book, that guy's white. Um, uh, that body's okay. white. Yes, Because I was like, they gave that line about her being afraid of the big dude. He's the metal to fan, the only... too, right? He's the metal fan, yeah. yeah. They give the line about her being afraid of the big dude to the only black character in the film other than Justin, other yeah. than Justice Smith, right? So, like, it's that's a little bit like, oh, you took out the fat phobia and you added a touch of racism. Cool. Um, uh, but... Oh, there, there is one other black character. There's the homeschool boy. Oh, I forgot about him. Oh, he's great. Who played him? He is played by Sean Jones, who I didn't recognize, but he's also quite good. He was actually, I think, probably the most charismatic of the bodies, now that you reminded me of that scene. Yeah, I mean, again... The memory just goes with it does both because of these texts because you're just literally seeing these people and they either get a scene or a day, mm-hmm. depending on which text you're looking at, to shine. And in this case, it's like some of these actors are really good and they can mm-hmm. make their interaction memorable, but it kind of also depends on the context. I mean, I think the film, again, does a good job of not extending it out for so long. So you're not meeting endless numbers of people but mm-hmm. i'm looking at the cast list on imdb and there's still roughly 20 people that we see a cycle through so yeah. it's easy to forget a bunch of what happens yeah i i completely forgot the homeschooling scene which is interesting because it's actually one of my favorite scenes in the book because it's when a starts to recognize at least some semblance of consequence in these poor people's lives yeah because he messes up that kid's life hardcore hardcore oh my gosh yes Yes, it does. And it's like, hmm. at least in that scene, there's some consequence for it in that A seems to feel sort of bad. But over and over again, we get this parallel line running of like, I don't mess in people's lives, but also. Except when I I do, do. and it totally messes up everything (laughs) for them. The thing that I didn't like in the film, though, is the film broke one rule. Okay. So with the suicidal girl whose name, Kelsia, I think. Yes. Yes. A stays in that body for two days. And it's never explained why that can happen. Nope. Why it's never happened before. Why it will never happen again. What the toll was to A for doing that. Yeah. Like, nothing. It's just like, we need need two days. So we're just gonna... (laughs) Well, it's hugely 
problematic from just a narrative consistency because you're like, well, why isn't he doing this all the time? And I think the mm-hmm. inference is meant to be, oh, he needed to stay in this body to make sure that she didn't try to self-harm herself mm-hmm. further or to make sure that it kind of stuck in some way. But mm-hmm. yeah, you're like, mm, that kind of undermines the central premise of your movie. It completely movie. undermines the central premise of the movie. Like, completely. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're just meant to gloss over it. Like, oh. You are. Mm. That's what I mean. Without any, like, sort of fanfare or discussion or explanation or, like, it's okay in this context because. Yeah. No, nothing. Just no. sometimes he stays two days. It's fine. But it also then sets up the end. So we briefly alluded to it with the book, but then the movie really overcompensates with this idea that once A finds a suitable alternative boyfriend for mm-hmm. Rhiannon, mm-hmm. so in this case, it's Alexander. I mean, it's Alexander in both texts, but in this case, it's a boy who goes to Rhiannon's school and A just stays in that body for days and days, days, days and days. days. And like messes up alexander's birthday and apparently just goes to class and they cut class basically has alexander's mom like weeping constantly because she doesn't know where her son went yeah which also doesn't make any sense because part of the idea is that he did it again part of the issue is that a can access the memories of the body that he did a third time Part of the issue is that A can access the memories of the body that it is inhabiting. and But it has to work to do it. Yeah, but there's so many times where... I know. We get, oh, I'm in a Hispanic household that only speaks Spanish, so I'm really going to have to access a bunch because I literally can't speak Spanish otherwise. And you're like, okay, well, that would be a lot of accessing. Yeah. There's fast and loose rules that just undermine the enjoyability of this as a result. Because it keeps moving. The stakes keep changing, right? So if it's really difficult for A to live in a Hispanic body because A doesn't speak Spanish. And so so accessing constantly in Spanish is so much work. And that has like a cost to it. That's interesting. But it doesn't makes sense when there's no ramification for that right like we never all we hear is a being like oh it's hard accessing all day anywho i'm tired but then in another body a's like i'm not gonna bother accessing this guy's french test i'm just gonna cut it and you're like but uh when does it matter and when is it hard and why don't you know those answers to those questions uh yeah this is definitely one of those things where everything kind of falls apart the more that you think about it this isn't one for the thinking about like i I was thinking as i was getting ready to talk today i was like sometimes i think like oh this would be a great book to teach this would be a horrible book to teach because with every minute spent talking about it it would just dissolve further and further into mush well i think it'd be good for creative writing classes who say yeah. so you've got this really great premise but have you thought here's why about... you should abandon it <laughs> well just more <laughs> if the whole conceit of your novel is this fantastic like beyond reality kind of concept that's a great selling feature mm-hmm. but if people can start to undermine it simply by picking at the surface lightly mm-hmm I don't understand why this book became a bestseller, except to say that I think that people liked the idea of a body-swapping romance. Mm-hmm. But as an adult with a critical eye, I think you look at this and you think, okay, but the romance is 
a bit stilted. The characters mm-hmm. are not as interesting or engaging as I'd like them to be. Or as they think they are. Or as they think they are, which, again, they're 16. Yeah, that's fair. No shade on 16-year-olds, but, like, you're still maturing. You're still figuring your stuff out. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Like, there's not enough to hang on here. Yeah. It really does remind me of everything, everything in that yeah. way where you're just like, okay, is this all you've got? It's true. I need more. I cannot imagine a reread of this book. And that's part of why Another Day is so hard. Because Another Day is basically just a reread of this book. Right. So this is the adjacent one where you're getting Rhiannon's point of view. Yeah. And like the entire first two chapters are just a rehash of the day at the beach. Oh, wow. And every beat is identical. Like she glosses over nothing. So it's a slog. Yeah. Okay, so no to that, as I said before. I think I'm about ready to wrap this up, but I do want to address one final thing. So when I said that I was reading this, and again, recording this in advance, so the person that I'm about to talk about, you're going to be like, wait, that was months ago. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. So longtime listener of the show, Cody, messaged me when he saw that we were reading this book and he had not read the book but he had seen the movie and he was very disappointed in it because of the attractiveness of these actors so we kind of made a joke off the top but i did want to address the fact that in the book you're always getting the sense that a is having a range of experiences so (laughs) a range of different types of bodies a Mm -hmm. range of different types of lifestyles you know like that's the richness of this particular conceit for all of its problems i think that's what i was trying to get at when i was talking about the fact that they cast jacob battalin as the as the only sort of fat character that a embodies because Yes, A embodies a transgender girl. And yes, A embodies a fat black man. And yes, A has these embodied experiences, but they are all, yes, beautiful people. People who model beautiful. People who are going to be received by the world in a particular way. And that's not the case in the book. No. I think it's part of why any attempt at recreating, I mean, why you would attempt to recreate that horrific fat phobic scene with Rian, I don't know. But if you were to try to do it in the film, it would fall apart with an actor as charismatic, beautiful. And mm-hmm. like when A wakes up in that young man's body, he's restricted in his ability to engage with the world. And that is not the case for a young man as handsome as Jacob Batalon, right? right? And like that's the case in all of these cases. When he wakes up in the body of like this beautiful transgender woman, Oh, yeah. That to me was actually, again, one of the, that was one of the standout moments Mm -hmm. on the screen. Yes. It's very brief, too, but. Yes. It's, yeah, it's almost disappointing. Like, again, no, no shade. But when you finally do meet Alexander, who's played by Owen Teague, you know, he's, he's a tall, thin, white dude. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. so generically okay to good looking and it caused me to pause and just reflect back on the range of different people that we had seen Mm -hmm. and I can appreciate that the casting was done in a diverse fashion for Mm -hmm. color Mm -hmm. so we do get a couple of black actors the girl who contemplates killing herself is Asian we've got a transgendered actress so that's great and I applaud that but then yeah like you look at it and it's basically saying well A jumps from body to body and gosh aren't these bodies all hot 
the Hollywoodizing of the attractiveness level is one thing, and also the Hollywoodizing of the discussion of class that does happen in the novel, right? Yeah. There's no poverty in this film. No, there's no poverty in this film. All of these teens are, you know, the typical affluent characters we see in a lot of these YA texts. It's getting to be a real trope of the film adaptations of these books. Yeah. And I think that's a problem. I think in both cases it's a problem because if the core message of the book is a bit of a failure, but this <laughs> idea of like a shared experience of humanity and like A is always telling us that people are so much more alike than they are different and you'd think it would be impossible to wake up in a different body every day, but actually like most people want the same things right. and our lived experiences are the same and if we can live with a little bit of empathy, we can, and then you just have like beautiful wealthy people. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. okay. Our shared experience <laughs> is that we are all incredibly attractive. Beautiful, wealthy people can always get along. Yeah. That's the moral. This is the <laughs> film industry. It's not exempt just because we're talking no. about teenagers, but it's a failure of imagination and it doesn't make the fantasy that much more enticing. Like, no. okay, if we want to talk about realism, realism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just because we've got two actors who appear in a major Hollywood franchise, so Jacob Attalon and Anne Gary, they're both in these Spider-Man movies. I'm not sure if you've ever watched them. I loved Homecoming. I haven't seen Far From Home yet. Okay. I mean, I haven't seen it in years since it was in theaters, but I distinctly remember that when you look at the teenagers who populate the high school, you're seeing a bunch of different types of bodies, backgrounds, lived experiences, and those things matter. There's a reason why people fixate on, I didn't get a black Spider-Man until Into the Spider-Verse, or when I read To All the Boys I've Loved Before, it was the first time I got to see myself have a romance. People are noticing these details. Mm -hmm. The fact that the very first thing that Cody mentioned when I said Mm -hmm. I was watching this film he immediately picked up on the messaging that you talked about as being the focal point, like the purpose mm-hmm. of this story. Mm-hmm. And his immediate reaction was, well, why all the pretty people then? Yep. Yeah, he's still People totally right. pay attention to this stuff. It's not enough. No. It's never going to be enough. We're always going to be able to say you can do better. And I applaud the fact that we didn't get that fat phobic scene in the film because in the interceding six years, people realize, no, we can't nope. do this. That's mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, then you see all of these other things where you're like, you know what? Cast the way that the world is. Looks, yes. The way it looks, the way it is. And like, throw in a kid who's struggling with money. I think at this mm-hmm. point, we got a mention of somebody saying, I don't have a car. Can you come to me today? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's not. No. No. Um, I want to correct something we just said. Okay. Just because we're talking about diversity and we're talking about bodies and we should be specific. So this is my fault. When I was talking, I was conflating together. There's a trans girl character in the text. Okay. The character in the film is a trans boy, Vic. Uh, uh, and okay. the actor who plays that character is Ian Alexander. Yes. So I just want to be clear because I totally conflated them when I was talking. So my apologies. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good catch. Yeah. Uh, do you have any YA bingo? Bingo! Not a good bingo. Yes, I do. I think I've been toying with what to go with here, and I think I want to go with supernatural elements. Okay, that's nice and broad. It's nice and broad, right? I'm I'm learning my lessons from season one. (laughs) (laughs) We just really want that bingo. (laughs) 
Finally, come on. <laughs> okay, I will go for something sort of similarly broad. I'm going to add perfect date. Oh. Because I feel like we see a lot of these. We see a lot of perfect dates. Yeah. We do. Yeah. And I feel like this is kind of compensating for when I tried to introduce holidays in that first <laughs> bingo bracket. <laughs> A lot of the time, yeah, there's just often this focalization on a particular... I'm thinking in this case, it's like romantic. Yeah. 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 Typically, we do see these couples have their perfect date. Their perfect date? No, I think that's a great choice. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, if people want to attack us or bring up something else, Brenna, how would they get a hold of you? I'm looking forward to hearing from the Everyday Stands. You can find me on the Twitters at Brenna C. Gray. Joe, where do they find you? I am at B, still on my remote. That's the letter B. And if you want to get both of us, you can use hashtag HKHSPod. Mm-hmm. And the email, oh, oh the email okay. is HKHSPod at gmail.com. Correct, yes. I'm so proud of me. Yeah. I'm interested <laughs> to hear from people who, like, if you were a big fan of this book when it first came out in 2012, I'm interested to know if it was the romance or the central premise that kind of attracted you. But also, are you like us and have difficulty remembering it? Like, is it just mm. kind of something that lingers or do you have a continued fondness for it? Yeah, I want to know that too, actually. Yeah. I wasn't sure if I had read it until I went to log it into Goodreads and was like, yep, you've already given this a score. <laughs> <laughs> I apparently what? read it back in 2013. What did 2013 Joe think of it? What score did you give it? I think I gave it a three, and I think yeah. I downgraded it to about a two. Yeah, I can see that. Speaking of things that are probably going to be not very good, mm-hmm. I just looked at the schedule because yeah. Joe's been messing with my schedule, and I see that he is making us read Anna Todd's After. Are you ready to get sexy schooled, Brenna? No. No, I'm not. <laughs> yes, folks, we are traveling back to Wattpad territory, which is no. not to say that things coming out of Wattpad are necessarily bad, but in I'm this not case, sure we... that's true, Joe. <laughs> I mean, they have so many people. I may be hoping to get a job at Wattpad one day, so I'm not going <laughs> to. No, in this case, yes. So we are we are traveling into the land of fan fiction that has been turned into its own standalone property that is not called Twilight. And we're going to be checking out Anna Todd's sexy coming of age after. I'm literally so mad at you. I know. I can't wait. <laughs> People have talked about how the episodes <laughs> that we get really angry are some of their favorites. So That's because people are mean to me on the internet, professionally. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm super resentful. And until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Stop.